How will the world meet growing energy demand while reducing emissions? What technology, human capital, policy, and education is needed to making the energy transition a reality? What are the myths and hard truths about all forms of energy, our environment, and our economy? The Voices of Energy sets out to explore these questions with the people at the heart of making these changes a reality. We'll go from conversation to application by focusing on actionable strategies that will drive the world and our industry into a new era. I'm Katie Maynard, founder and CEO of Ally Energy, and this is the Voices of Energy. Sharon Hewitt was a pioneer for women in the oil and gas industry. After earning her mechanical engineering degree from Louisiana State University, Sharon became one of the first female executives in a major oil and gas company. Over a 20-year career for working at Shell, one of my alma maters, her various assignments range from working offshore on a drilling rig to honing her technical, financial, and executive leadership skills responsible for managing major deep water assets in the Gulf of Mexico. As an engineer, Sharon is a professional problem solver. Before serving in Baton Rouge, her only other elected position was to lead her children's PTA program in her hometown of Slidell, Louisiana. I'm smiling because I, I, my family lives not too far from Slidell. Sharon worked to improve education policy and expand STEM programs in local schools, receiving the National PTA Lifetime Achievement Award for her leadership. She's a consistent champion for smaller government, lower taxes, fewer frivolous lawsuits, and better jobs. In 2018, she was named National Legislator of the Year by the American Legislative Exchange Council for her leadership on these issues. She serves as chairwoman of the Senate Republican Caucus and chairwoman of the Senate Government Affairs Committee, which oversees redistricting efforts and approves thousands of gubernatorial appointments. She is proud to represent Senate District 1 in Louisiana, which includes St. Tammany, St. Bernard, Plaquemines, and Orleans Parishes. Oh my gosh, I am so glad to have you on our Voices of Energy podcast. Thanks for joining us, Senator Hewitt. Oh, you're so welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's always fun for me to get to talk about oil and gas. It's kind of a blast from the past and so different, you know, in many ways from my uh, current legislative responsibilities. So I'm happy to be here. Well, good. And we always like bringing dynamic women, dynamic policymakers to talk about dynamic issues. And so we're going to get into that. But before we get into all the dynamic stuff, we're going to do some icebreakers. We're going to do an icebreaker here. So are you a morning or night person? A hundred percent morning person. You'll see me fading out on the on the family sofa somewhere around nine o'clock, probably. <laughs> all right. Red or white wine? Well, I'm an all of the above kind of wine drinker, but I probably lean a little bit more red. All right. Person you would like to meet most? I think it would have been fascinating to have met Ronald Reagan. I've been out to his ranch and toured and learned a little bit about his life. And he just seemed like a really remarkable person with a very diverse uh, professional background. And uh, I think, you know, obviously one of the best presidents our country's ever had. So I would have loved to have met him. Wow. Well, you and I are not going to disagree on that. I adore Reagan. And as a lifelong conservative myself, fell in love with him as a, a five-year-old. I remember thinking I was going to be the first female president. He inspired me. So good answer. There's still time for that. There's still well, time we'll for see. 
<laughs> we'll see. We're getting, we're cracking some of those ceilings, right? So, okay. Last question. Have you taken up any new hobbies during COVID? I know you've been doing some hunting. Yeah, I have. And it, this started a little bit before COVID, but it's been only in the last five years since I've um, become a legislator. You know, I live in Louisiana, the sportsman's paradise. And I finally began to realize that, you know, I needed to learn to hunt and fish. Uh, it's a great way to work with my constituents and my colleagues in the legislature. And so uh, I just got back from a quail hunt in Georgia. I've got, you know, alligator bling everywhere from, uh, from my last alligator hunt. You know, I love to hunt ducks and, you know, it's really and deep water fishing. I mean, we have the best in Louisiana. And so it's really been so much fun. And the guys have been great to teach me. I do a sporting clay shoot as a fundraiser every year. That's one of the most popular events of the year. And so I'm having a great time. My dad passed away last year. He would love to see all of this because he was a big hunter. And he would have been so proud to have seen that his daughter finally showed an interest in his uh, lifelong passion. Wow. It sounds like your dad and my dad uh, could have gone fishing together. So, well, this is great. So, you know, okay, let's talk a little bit about before, before politics. Tell us a little bit about what you did at Shell and what it was like to be a female engineer and rising the ranks of, of a big oil company, now a big energy company into the executive ranks. Well, you know, it, it's funny. I never really thought about, you know, these stories as being as being stories while I was in the thick of it and working. You know, so I started working for Shell in the early 80s after graduating from LSU. And, and I was the only female in my mechanical engineering graduation class. And Shell's training program back in the day was for every new engineer to spend your first working offshore on the drilling rig. And so I remember it like it was yesterday. I was on the helicopter my very first day and, you know, we were flying offshore and, and we landed, all the guys scattered. And, you know, I had this great big bag. I was dragging all around the platform trying to figure out where the office was. And finally, I saw something that looked like, you know, that could be the office. It was like a trailer on the far end of the platform. And I was worried about how would I know, you know, who's the guy in charge? Well, it was pretty easy because he had on, you know, red coveralls like I did, but his were his sleeves were cut out and his boots were all unlaced and his coveralls were half unzipped. And he was basically the biggest, baddest, burliest guy in the room. <laughs> and I stuck my hand out to introduce myself and he kind of glared at me and he spit in his tobacco cup and he stuck his hands in his pocket. And, and he said, there's two problems with the oil business. And I thought, okay, well, this is great. It's my first day. I'm going to get this great <laughs> nugget of information. You know, it's going to change my career. And uh, so he said, there's two problems with the oil business. The first is O-rings. And you know what those are, Katie. Those are the black elastomers that keep, you know, drill pipe from leaking. It's like your water right. hose, you know, keeping that from leaking. And the second problem is women. <laughs> oh, lovely. And so I thought, well, that's great. I've never been compared to an O-ring before. You know, this is going to be a great career. And so, you know, fast forward, as, as you would expect, you know, they, they tested me as I had an opportunity to basically outwork everybody and earn their respect. You know, then we became great friends. And, 
you know, in the end, when I when I left the company, I was managing hundreds of employees, billions of dollars in assets. And some of those guys that gave me such a hard time in the beginning of my career were actually working for me at the end. And so, you know, it was a it was just a great experience. It was a great company. I still think it is a great company. I learned a lot about managing budgets and, and leadership and a lot of skills that quite honestly transfer very well to state government. And so I still say we when I talk about the energy business and uh, think that the energy business still has a very bright future uh, in the state of Louisiana and, and I think in our country. Awesome. You know, it's so serendipitous we're having this conversation. I, I, I feel like, well, we were neighbors for years, just didn't know it. And I'm not an engineer by background, but but hearing you talk about LSU, which I went to LSU, and hearing you talk about your days at Shell, and it's a wonderful company. You're absolutely right. And, and these companies, energy companies, have done so much to power our world, but they've also done so much to build this energy workforce we have. I mean, some of the brightest minds, in fact, the brightest minds were people that I um, got to work for. So it sounds like you made the guys, you want, you wooed the guys over, they ended up working for you, and I bet they ended up voting for you. So speaking of that, why did you decide to run for office as an energy expert? You just kind of brought about, you know, brought forward the notion that the skill sets could be applicable to government. I'm very intrigued now because I always look at government and think, God, it moves slow. How did you make the transition? Well, it definitely moves slow. I can't argue with that. And I'm patient. So I'm always trying to push us, you know, to do things a little bit more fast, a little bit faster. I did leave Shell after about 20 years because our third grader, quite honestly, was struggling with his multiplication tables. And I felt like I wasn't doing, you know, my job as a mom or I wasn't I wasn't as present as I felt like I wanted to be. And so I did leave the company and then came home and did, you know, all the PTA stuff and brought a lot of STEM type activities and technology into our schools. And then when our sons graduated from college, I began thinking about, you know, well, what's next for me? I had a great, you know, career, working career. I'd spent a lot of time, you know, um, with my life centered around my children, as lots of women do, and trying to make our school system better. And then so I began to say, okay, well, what's next for me? What's chapter three for me? And one thing I learned about myself and all of those experiences is that the things that meant the most to me was when I felt like I was really making a difference, as corny as that sounds. It wasn't about the money or the power or the whatever. It was really about making a difference. And I felt this strong pull because I felt like our country and our state were heading in the wrong direction. And that if good people didn't run, that we were never going to be able to fix it. And um, engineers, you know, were kind of made up as problem solvers. It's in our DNA. And there was an infinite number of problems I felt like that needed to be solved. And so you know, no one in my in my family had ever run for office before. I, you know, never run and felt like this was the time. And so I just took a leap of faith and ran for office. I ended up um, beating a former legislator by 19 points. Very nice. Well done. And 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 I think we do need more people um, with business experience running local, state, and and federal government. You know, um, that's just Katie's personal opinion. I think there's a lot that business teaches you about people, about the politics of people and motivating people. 
and it's important too, in business, there's a lot of innovation and technology. So, you know, speaking of technology, what kind of technology you see playing a role in the energy transition? You know, there's a lot of talk about the energy transition right now. And what kind of policy will we see around these trends? And and how is your state responding to uh, climate change around uh, technology? Well, sometimes it's a little bit hard to predict. I'd like to say one thing that always kind of blew my mind. And that was when I was working for Shell, and, and I know that you remember this too, Katie, that many times we would bid on and, and, and get leases offshore in the deep water in areas where the technology had not yet been developed for us to be able to develop those leases. So we were betting on the fact that we were smart enough to develop the leases, to develop the technology to drill in 20,000 feet of water or whatever in time before the leases expired. Because as you know, if you don't act on them within a certain time frame, you lose the leases. And so these companies are very strong technology companies. And even companies like Shell back in the 80s, we had divisions that were focused on renewable energy. So the companies, I believe, the oil and gas companies, definitely are evolving into energy companies. And they are looking at all kinds of you know, alternative forms and are going to be part of that you know, business. One of the things I'm kind of excited about happening in Louisiana right now, and this goes to your, to your point about climate change, is uh, carbon capture. So carbon capture is, as you know, the refineries and manufacturing facilities, and we have lots of them in Louisiana, they uh, emit carbon into the air, which contributes to greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. And so carbon sequestration is the process by which um, refineries would capture that carbon instead of emitting it into the air, uh, condense it into a liquid, transport it through our infinite amount of pipelines, underground pipelines in the state of Louisiana, and then inject it into a depleted oil and gas reservoir for storage. And so that is a great way, not only uh, will Louisiana be a leader in that area, but it's, it's so great for the environment. And so right now there are federal tax credits that are encouraging companies to capture their carbon. And uh, I think that we're very well positioned in Louisiana to be a leader in that area. I passed a bill last year to establish kind of the legislative infrastructure to govern that process. And there are many states that are actively pursuing it. I think Louisiana is going to be very well positioned to take advantage of that. Sweet. Now, you know, I think I'm excited about it. Just thinking about the technology and, and knowing, like you were saying, you know, and one of the really cool things I think that I loved about working at Shell and BP is companies that that push the push the boundaries of tech. You know, looking at what's possible. And um, you know, I think about that right now under the under the guise of what's going on in the country, what's going on in the world. You know, obviously fossil fuels are not going away overnight. What role do you think they play in the energy transition? And what are you thinking when? You know, I know the last couple of weeks it's been executive order after executive order. And and by the way, I, I note note that both the previous administration and the current administration were really good at using EO powers. But um but I, I'm curious to, to understand your thought on you know fossils and the role they play in the energy transition. And then maybe you have some concerns or some um uh 
uh, maybe you see some opportunities as well with uh, what's going on in Washington and in the U.S. around energy development. Well, there's certainly been a lot of breaking news in the last few days about executive orders uh, that would limit like offshore leasing on federal lands or offshore waters. It's scary to me, the things that uh, that are being talked about within the current administration. And, you know, it's kind of ironic. I actually testified before Congress about two years ago on this exact same topic. It was the House Subcommittee on Energy and Mineral Resources that was part of the House Natural Resources Committee. And, you know, I went into that hearing. I think I was pretty much the only pro oil and gas person in that entire room, save, uh, you know, our congressman from Louisiana and a few other uh, friendly faces. But I wanted to share with you maybe a, a few statistics about the impact of the oil and gas industry on both our country and our state, the state of Louisiana, which was the purpose of, of my testimony and, and kind of a little forecasting looking forward and why I believe that the policies that the current administration's talking about are premature, I guess would be the best way to say it. So, you know, the first thing I'd like to say is that, you know, when the first offshore well was drilled 70 years ago till today, you know, 90% of the crude oil that's been produced in the United States has come from the Gulf of Mexico. So it is the place for oil production. Uh, today, the Gulf of Mexico accounts for about 17% of the crude that's produced in the United States. So in terms of revenue that goes to the federal treasury, Louisiana is delivering more revenue to the federal treasury from offshore production than any other state. And it's to the tune of about $7 billion, that's billion with a B per year, comes from offshore Louisiana to the federal treasury. On my state, it actually has about a $70 billion annual impact on our economy. And we directly receive about $2 billion a year in taxes and fees from the industry. So, you know, the discussion about, you know, slowing things down and moratorium and all that, that has a very real impact on the economy of our state and our country and, and our energy security. The other thing that's noteworthy is that, you know, royalties from offshore oil and, and gas production go to the federal government. And then part of that comes back to the coastal states through the GOMESA Act. That's the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act that Senator Landrew way back in the day was so instrumental in 2006 in helping to pass. And so what that is doing is recognizing the contributions of the nation's energy security and independence from those coastal states. So what that money is used for in Louisiana is coastal restoration and protection projects. It is in excess of over a million, a hundred million dollars a year that comes back to our state. And we're using that to save the coast, to rebuild the coastline and to keep our, our state from sinking. In addition, there is money that is set aside for all kinds of conservation projects for in all of the states. It's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That was established in 1964. And basically it's to help again, to safeguard our natural resources, water resources, and to provide recreational opportunities for all Americans. So this fund basically takes earnings from offshore leases 
Mm -hmm. So, you know, you pay a fee, an old company would, to lease a geographic area for a specific period of time. And then that money gets distributed to all the states for conservation projects. It has been, um, since 1964, it has been over $4 billion that has gone to 43,000 conservation projects. You stop leasing in the Gulf of Mexico, you stop those conservation projects. You stop drilling and producing in the Gulf of Mexico and you stop you know, the, the coastal restoration projects that are saving the Louisiana coast. And so then I look at, I look at the, 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 um, the supply and the demand curves. So um, I know you're familiar with the International Energy Agency. Oh yes, yes. They, so they do forecast all the time of supply and demand. So what they have said is that the demand for oil and gas is projected to still constitute more than 50% of the world's energy needs in 2040. And it's not because we are trying to snuff out the renewables. There's a growing, you can see a growing supply of solar and wind that's in that forecast and other renewables, coal and others, of course. But because the population is continuing to increase, the demand is going to continue to increase. And so even in 2040, 50% of the world's energy is still going to be provided by fossil fuels. And because as wells are declining in production, if we don't continue to invest in leasing and drilling and development programs, then we're going to have an 88 million barrels of oil per day shortfall in 2040. And that's would require roughly an investment of $10 trillion. And so not only do, do fossil fuels meet a huge part of the the energy needs when we're talking about fuel and electricity and those things, but they're the only ones that can provide the plastics and the clothing and the medicines and the electronics that we've all become so dependent on. You know, you're not gonna make a cell phone from solar or wind energy, right? right? That's only those plastics are made from fossil fuels. And so while I support an all of the above strategy, from this administration and, and the previous administrations, you can't just chop off fossil fuels abruptly when you don't have the capacity to fill those needs in some other way. Right. And so I think it's premature. And I think that the actions that this administration have taken in the last week or two through executive orders is not well thought out. And it's very scary. Yeah. So, you know, I appreciate, first of all, I appreciate you using the words mature or premature. It's interesting. I think if I, and if I may be so bold and say this, because we talked earlier a little bit about um, how the guys, you know, gave you a hard time on the rig and you had to prove yourself, you know, there's something about, and I've testified as well before Congress on the workforce of the future. And I remember being the only fossil fuel person in the room and being a little concerned about that, but I brought my daughter and, you know, the one thing that I've learned about women, and particularly women in the energy industry, if I may be so bold, with experience, you know, who've gotten on rigs, who've, you know, been to plants, who've run assets, been in operational and health and safety and environment roles, is that is that there's something about a woman that simply diffuses the ideology. I really have to believe, Senator Hewitt, that I hope with more women in congressional roles, more women like yourself at the state level, um, at the local level as well. 
the power of what I call the feminine, and I, I hate to sound like some sort of feminist, but the power of women and negotiation and having real conversations. You know, I think how to ask the same question to, to someone else, maybe a man, and this is probably a bit of a generalization, but I'm going for it because this is my podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, way to own it, right? I think I probably would have gotten the answer. It's crazy. It's nuts. You know, it's off the wall. I, I think there's something to be said for, first of all, you laying out very factually and unemotionally where these funds come from, right? And we're kind of living in a weird time. Look, you live in Louisiana. I'm from Louisiana. I live in Texas. I've lost a lot of property and things due to storms. We know that this uh, that climate change is a reality, but it's going to it's going to be a balance. It's it's got to be a balance. It can't be a swift, and it can't be a swift way for one one form of fuel or for another form of fuel. But I, I'm interested, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about the facts and talk about this in an unemotional way and using language like it's premature and not it's nuts, it's crazy, it's socialist, it's this, it's that, you know, I hear so much negative language from both sides that I really think that women are going to play a massive role in educating and getting people to come a little closer to the middle, if you know what I mean, in this country. Because I, I, I hear it all day long, and I'm pro-oil and gas. I grew up around it. I've, I've benefited from it from a jobs perspective, right? But that's not to say that I haven't, you know, had losses. And you've obviously visited with plenty of people, right, in Louisiana who've been impacted by floods. You know, this is, a, it's a growing, it's a growing challenge, but I'm with you. We need balance. You can't swing a bat and say, okay, turn it all off, right? You have to have a thoughtful plan, right, when it comes to this. And this is the dilemma that I think is exciting about what's what's the next, you know, two, four years looks like, trying to get people to have these conversations. So I hope you get yourself up to Washington. Speaking of which, you know, you recently were named chairwoman chairwoman of the the RLCC which is the Republican Legislative Campaign Committee are you looking to get more involved in the Republican party on a national scale i mean I, i'll be honest with you i'm from the great state of texas and we have we're in our state we're a red state and um there are a lot of men in the Republican party um, and I'm a big believer that we need to have more women involved. And I would love to get your perspective on what the future looks like at the national level for the for the conservatives. Because there are a lot of people in this past election that went in different ways. Let's just put it that way, right? You know, we had a divided nation on the presidency. What's your thought on that? I know it's a long diatribe. I just kind of threw that at you. But you know, are you interested in getting more involved on a national scale? I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm very, I'm getting excited to hear what your, uh, what maybe your plans might be. Well, I, I appreciate that, and that, yeah, that was a lot. But let me just sort of make a few, a few comments. The Republican Party actually did extremely well in this last election cycle, and and did elect record numbers of women and minorities to state office, you know, in the legislature, lieutenant governors, governors, 
et cetera. So that's very exciting. And those things don't happen by themselves, right? You have to have a deliberate strategy in looking for candidates that are well-qualified that are other than the traditional white males. And so there has been a strategy for some time. I'm involved in, in a lot of efforts to help recruit and train you know, women. I've spoken around the country you know, on that topic and have, you know, many other, you know, women that are great, um, great colleagues and friends and mentors that are doing the same thing. We also made great strides in Congress. The, Re- the Republicans did. You know, we have, you know, we picked up a lot of seats in the House of Representatives. So although we lost, you know, the presidency and of course we lost the critical Senate races in Georgia but we made, other than that, we across the nation, conservatives were elected in record numbers. In the state legislatures, for example, uh, Republicans now control 62 of the 99 legislative chambers around the country. We picked up three chambers in this last cycle. And so we think that conservative principles and ideals, you know, are do a good job of representing what the majority of the people in the country believe. And so we're going to continue to, you know, look for ways to advocate for those and to moderate maybe some of the policies that are coming out of of the White House. But, you know, when you win that you get to set the agenda and you get to introduce your ideas as solutions for some of the country's uh, challenges. And so I think it is incumbent on all of us to find ways where we can work together and, uh, you know, find some common ground and some things that, uh, you know, where we share. But in terms of sort of my future, you know, the RLCC is the only national Republican organization that is focused on getting conservatives elected at the state legislature level. And so as the chairwoman for that group, part of what I will be focused on over this next year is helping uh, our friends in Virginia and New Jersey you know, elect more good conservatives to the state legislatures in in 2021, and then kind of prepare for the big wave of elections in 2022. Uh, But most of my focus is going to continue to be here at the state level for now in Louisiana. Uh, I I get great um, input from my colleagues in other states, and we share a lot of best practices, you know, that I think are very beneficial to to the state. So whether we're talking about how to best manage the coronavirus, you know, response and the vaccination programs, our election law reforms, you know, those are all things that I'm in conversations with on a national level so that, um, you know, none of us are working in a vacuum and we can work together and share best practices across the country. And so, you know, there's lots of problems here in Louisiana to solve. Uh, We're not, we haven't fixed them all yet. I do think that having diverse legislators and leaders definitely brings uh, a different set of solutions to some of our challenges. And so, you know, we always want the best people to run, but if the best people happen to be female, I'm really excited. Me too. I'm so excited for you. And I I love, I love having this conversation. So last question for you is really going to be focused on energy workforce. You know, Obviously, the workforce is going to look different. And I'd love to know, you know, if you look back on all your experience, very rich experience we've talked about today, what advice do you have for that next generation energy worker? 
Well, I would say, you know, energy, there will always be a need for energy in this world. And so there will always be a job for you if you get the the degree or the industry-based certifications. There's lots of different ways to work in the energy industry. And so we need people. And I also would say to that, that, you know, I've evolved over time as a as a mom that believed that both of our sons should go to college, get a four-year degree, to someone who really now believes that it's incumbent on us to provide multiple paths for, for people so everyone achieves their maximum potential. And so a lot of what I do in Louisiana right now is look at all the different industries that we have, and certainly oil and gas is, is a big part of that, but look at the industries that we have and kind of work backwards to connect the dots and to make sure that we're providing pathways, educational pathways and training opportunities for our students and and even people that are needing to make career changes. Because of the coronavirus, we're retraining a lot of hospitality and tourism folks into other careers where there's there's a need for jobs uh, with a new skill set. And so I think uh, energy is always going to be part of the conversation. We actually have in my district uh, a company that is making the largest w- turbine blades for, for wind, um, wind turbine blades in the country. And then the platforms that they're using on the East Coast to support these structures are being built by people that formerly built oil and gas platforms in shallow water. And so the technologies are all very transferable. And I think that folks with energy skills are always going to be in the conversation and are going to be part of the solution. Awesome. Well, Senator Hewitt, you have a vote in me, even though I'm I'm sitting in the great state of Texas in the energy capital of the world, Houston. And it is such a pleasure. We have had you participate in some of our programming the last several years. It's great to hang out with a fellow LSU alum, a fellow energy alum, a fellow Shell alum. And I won't go as far as to say a fellow of politician alum. I haven't gotten into political service, although being a part of the ambassador program to the Department of Energy is exciting. And so I hope to be able to work with the new administration that comes in and maybe we can get folks, like you said, thinking um, more about practical energy policy for the country. So thank you so much for coming. We love having you and you're always welcome here. Well, I appreciate it, Katie. It's been fun talking with you and, and swapping war stories. And thank you for all the work that you're doing to try to help, you know, get the message out and, and talking about energy. I think this is going to be a, a very important part of the conversation in this administration. And um, I believe you can do it all. I think you can protect the environment. I think you can still uh, meet the energy needs of our of our country and our nation or, or the world. And we can still be the sportsman's paradise in Louisiana. We can do it all. So thanks for giving me a few minutes to talk, to share my enthusiasm, you know, for the, the challenges ahead. 